Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 42. My name is Joseph Darnell, and joining me today on this wet quest down into the depths of the sea is Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. Looking forward to today. Today is going to be a very special exploration of some of your many skillful, knowledgeable areas of expertise. You're going to talk all about corals, and it's High time that you took a deep dive into that subject. Well, I'm actually surprised that we've spent all this time and never talked about them. I mean, I'm literally, I was like, what? I'm looking at the episode list and, and things like that. It's like, this is a huge part of my life for quite a while. Me of many hats and many jobs and many professions and who still trying to figure out what he wants to do when he grows up. <laughs> but for um, several years there in graduate school, I was raising corals for a living. I was the coral man. Interesting. So was that at the beginning of your career or did it start as well through college and go into career? Uh, When I was teaching high school, between college and graduate school, I spent four years teaching science. And a couple of years in, the Parents Association bought a 200-gallon tank for my classroom. And I filled it up with rocks and salt water and coral and had a little coral tank. And I didn't do very good because I was brand new. I didn't know what I was doing. And that broadened into a love of marine biology, and I ended up getting a PhD in coral reef ecology. But while I was at University of Miami, after several years there, I'm not, I don't even know how it happened, but I was talking to one of the guys who was really good at raising all sorts of various things, and he had a corner of the lab. He's like, hey, I want to start raising coral. And so we just converted it into a coral raising facility. I had like 16 eight-foot-long tanks, and we just started going. It was a good learning experience. When you said you did this in the classrooms, how big were your classrooms in the first place? Oh, well, 25 feet by 25 feet, I think, one foot, one square foot tiles, because I remember we did a math lesson once where we did the surface area of the classroom. Yeah. But in the entryway, you know, five foot long tank against the wall didn't take up much space. Oh, okay. So when you said a 200 gallon tank, I I just, my proportions were way off. (laughs) I pictured something that would consume the scope of your average classroom. I guess 200 gallons doesn't go that far. It depends on how high and how wide it is, yes. Now, I prefer shallow tanks that are long because you can fit a lot more stuff in there. You don't have all that extra volume of water. And plus, you have less likelihood of having a leak if you have a shallow tank. Mm. The taller your tank is, the more water pressure at the bottom and the more likely you are to spring a leak and then, well, that's a pain in the neck. Okay. And that's what happened to my big tank. It leaked. And I couldn't fix it and couldn't fix this. We actually took it all apart, brought it back to the store. They swapped it out with a brand new one, brought the brand new tank back, set it all again. Half my stuff died, but it was a um, a a learning experience right there. Speaking of which, I know this is a rabbit trail among rabbit trails, but uh, okay, you got half of your your, uh, aqua life died. How did the other half survive while you were getting the repair? What did you have them in? Well, it, I didn't get the repair. I literally swapped out the tank. Oh, okay. So it was not like it was a week long. No, 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 no. It was a couple hours in a in a garbage can <laughs> or a couple of garbage cans. Good thing that the coral don't uh, understand what they're, where their host is putting them. They're not very picky visitors or... <laughs> well, they are a lot pickier than you might think, but which is why I lost half of them. Mm. Oh, interesting. And plus, the, uh, just turning everything upside down. Uh, the sand bed, the rocks, the, you do that, you disturb the environment and a lot of things that were held in check explode and some things are doing well, they go down and you have to rebalance everything and just, yeah, it was a, it was a big mess. 
Well, I want to dive right into it. I'm, I'm trying not to use these puns. And <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where we want to begin. Do you want to describe the aquarium setup or the creatures in their natural habitats? Do you want to compare salt and freshwater? Do you want to begin with your career and talk about that for the next 15 minutes? What do you want to do? Well, we've already blown the um, the outline way out of proportion. We skipped over yeah. all the cool stuff we learned this week, which we had for the filler material in the beginning. So we'll save that for next week. Okay. And now we're kind of winging it. I don't know. Let's talk about coral reefs first. So what people's appetites for the amazing beauty of the tropical seas. How's that? Okay. Well, then on that note, then one way you could express that is why you're getting sucked back into this in the first place. Yeah, I, I have been out of this field since about 2004. I got my PhD in 2003. I was still working at the university for a little bit afterwards. And then I ended up uh, working full time outside the university. And yet, I don't know what happened, but about a month or so ago, I just, I was in the shower and <laughs> I had a brainstorm. I said, oh, I can do that. And well, that brainstorm led to another one, another one, another one. Now I'm dreaming, I'm literally waking up in the morning, having dreamt about raising corals and technology and, and uh, ways to do X, Y, and Z and things like that. And so interesting. I found a, a aquarium store in Powder Springs, not too far from where I live. There's one out in Dallas, but he doesn't have a lot of uh, corals. He's got a lot of snakes and birds and mice and things like that. Uh, just Ew. a couple of corals, a couple of fish. But there's people out in Powder Springs, they've got just multiple tanks full of fragmented corals that are growing. They're a couple inches by a couple of inches. They're beautiful, different colors. And I went there for about an hour uh, last week and I just stared. It's like, I want these. And so I have a plan. I know what I want to do. I know what I want to raise. I know the species I want to raise because I have a goal of getting these to reproduce in captivity. That is my goal. So that can be done. It has been done. It's just not very common. It's kind of like level nine if you crank it all the way up and seek the hardest approach to corals. Um, maybe. Depends on which one we're talking about. No, oh, that makes sense. I did a lot of work in, um, in the summertime on the Florida Keys reef track. Three, four, five, six days after the full moon in August. <laughs> what? As long as there was a full moon in August. If the full moon was at the end of July, yeah, and there'd be another one in September, sometimes it's split. But generally, the warmest month of the year, a couple of days after the full moon, a couple of hours after sunset, a massive spawning event happened in the reef. That is right after the were fish have turned back into coral. And <laughs> the, yeah, the, the, after the full moon. We spent, I mean, Night after night after night. And it was, a, it was a tough life having to you know, go out onto the reef about five o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, yeah, and anchor and enjoy the sunset and watch the stars come out and then do a dive and look around and come back up and do another dive and did that you know, several nights in a row. You make this sound very fun. And the next month, do it again because you have to do it the next month just in case some corals miss it the first month, you know. And what happened was you, you'd go up to a coral colony. It might be as big as a refrigerator or something like that maybe bigger, maybe smaller. And you'll notice that it looks kind of funny. All the polyps are pulled in and his mouth is bulging out and there'll be a little pink dot. You ever, you ever break up styrofoam? You know those little white balls yeah. that styrofoam turns into? Well, it's about that size, a little okay. dot and pink. And that's a bundle of eggs. Ooh. And yeah. depending on the species, there might be up to 100 eggs in each dot and who knows how many sperm wrapped up in there. 
And every single mouth of the entire coral colony, usually on the top, so one colony would release thousands of little pink dots simultaneously. And the next colony would do it, and the colony over there would do it, and the colony over there would do it, and the whole water column would fill with confetti that was floating upwards. I'm imagining that a lot of the confetti winds up fush, uh, f- fush vid? Uh, I was going to say fish food. Uh, is it yes. going to wind up fish food? Oh. Yes, the, the shrimp would come out, the um, crabs would come out, the fish would come out, the squid would come out, the cuttlefish would come out, the octopuses came out. Everybody on the reef came out, and they just ate and ate and ate and ate. But one of the brilliant strategies of this for the coral is that because they only do it once a year, there's nothing that can specialize in eating coral babies. Oh. So what they do is they produce so many babies that nothing can possibly eat them all. I mean, millions and millions and millions. And they float up to the surface. And from the boat, you can see it, this pink slick. And the, these little bundles break open. Oh, that sounds And so the eggs cool. are now are, oh, it's amazing. The eggs are tiny. They're, they're, they're super tiny. You think something as big as a, a, a styrofoam ball breaks up into 100 little pieces. Yeah. And then a sperm from one colony will fertilize the eggs from another colony. Wow. So they are hermaphroditic, but they're not self-fertile. Most colonies, most coral species. And you have multiple species all doing this at the same time. And so literally the eggs of different species are mixed together, but the sperm can't do cross-species fertilization. And then a couple of nights later, the other set of corals, the, uh, the Elkhorn, the Staghorn corals, they would reproduce a couple of hours after sunset. So we'd spend at least a week diving every night studying coral reproduction. And it was amazing and fun. Oh, it was, it was a dream job. You're not going to get those guys to reproduce in a laboratory or at your house. Oh, okay. So is that normal across all the species or just... Well, the issue is that those types of corals, they've got to be 10, 20, or 100 years old before they start reproducing. So is that normal across all the species or just... Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's, it depends on the species. But the broadcast spawning corals tend to be the larger corals. And they tend to have you know, 5, 10 years before they're big enough to actually start doing this. Uh... And what are you going to do with those babies? I mean, I, in fact, I'll put up another picture of, of a setup that I had of the guy. He had a con, he rented a condo in, um, on Key Largo and we harvested a whole bunch of coral babies and brought them back to his condo and spent a week trying to keep them alive. Oh. And it was almost impossible because they're like 90% fat. They're little (laughs) teeny blobs of fat. And if that fat touches the glass wall of the aquarium, they stick to it. Wow. So how do you keep a floating blob of fat from touching the walls? Well, you have to um, put an aerator all around the outside. So you have air bubbles going up the outside oh. of, of the, the inside the tank, but, but up the walls of the tank and the water would flow toward the middle and they would all collect in the middle. Yeah, sort of. And just every day you get more and more and more and more dead, 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 dead. <laughs> and maybe you get a couple left. And I do have some that I successfully got to grow and it, they grow for a week or so. And they turn and they go from like one one cell, and that divides into two, divides into four, divides into eight, and it's a blob of cells. And then one end pinches in, and that's where the, the mouth goes. And then they get a bunch of cilia, and they start swimming. And they swim. These little guys, they, they zzz, like in a little corkscrew, and they swim, 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 swim. And then when you're ready, you can put a rock in the tank. And if that rock's got the bacteria they like or the algae they like on it, they'll detect it. They'll land on it, and you can watch them under a microscope. They go from this, this thing that looks like Casper the ghost. <laughs> Literally, that's the shape. 
and the bottom end touches and they squish down and they turn into a flower. Wow. And then over the next couple of days, they'll make a cup and they'll put partitions like a slices of a pie, but six slices instead of eight slices, like a pizza. They'll put these, uh, these lines across the middle and uh, you have a little, a little flower there and have little brown dots in it, which are the little algae inside it. And more than likely, that guy's going to die. And the chance of that thing surviving is a million to one. Wow. Because it gets squished by an anemone, or it gets stepped on by a crab, or gets eaten by a predator, or it gets overgrown by um, crustose coralline algae. I mean, there's, there's millions of ways to kill these things. And they're, they're only you know, one little polyp. They're so tiny, you can hardly even see them with your eye. And most all of them die. And so the broadcast spawning coral, they get big and they make lots of babies and they throw them up into the water column and they float away and hopefully somewhere downstream there's a nice coral reef for them to land again and make new babies. Yeah, so it's a lot like other creatures like spiders that just produce so many young that lots of them are going to die. Yeah. But even though most of them died, some of them survive. So the species does yes. just fine. It keeps going. But if you think about the Florida Keys Reef Tract, the Gulf Stream goes right along the reef tract and goes north. All the babies produced in Florida are floated, they float away out of Florida to places where they can't live. They can't live in the Carolinas. Oh, that's They can't too even bad. live as far north as uh, Cape Canaveral in Florida. It's too cold. There's a Caribbean reef that's constantly producing babies that land in Florida. But Florida's a dead end, except for Bermuda. Bermuda. Even though Bermuda's off the coast of the Carolinas, it's right in the middle of the Gulf Stream. And those coral babies are constantly washing as far north as Bermuda and landing there. So Bermuda has a coral reef. Uh, it's one of the most high latitude coral reefs in the world. It's really cool. While you mention that, I have two questions. Yeah. That I, to paint the picture for everybody. Generally speaking, do coral just grow in the tropical regions around the equator in the ocean all around the world? Or, or, or are there some that do better off in colder environments? Yes and yes. Okay. There are vast fields of coral off the northern coast of Scotland. Oh. There's coral that grows under the Antarctic sea ice. Whoa, I did not know that. There are corals that grow in the blackest depths of the ocean, but they grow slowly. They tend to be fragile. You see pieces of this wash. If you've ever been down to the Gulf, yeah. you find pieces of coral on the shore of the Gulf. Yeah. There's more than likely oculina, which is a, a coral that doesn't grow in it does grow in the tropics but it grows everywhere else and it, it's outcompeted mostly in the tropics it doesn't need sunlight it just needs a food source oh the corals that make coral reefs though they have algae inside them they need sunlight to feed the algae so if you get turbid water cloudy water uh, if it's stirred up if you're too close to maybe a, a shipping channel and the ships are constantly churning fine particles into the water column that darkens the water, coral reef's not going to grow there. So my other question was, as far as varieties of coral, are there as many of them as there are varieties of flowers or, yep. you know, are there half as many varieties and they all basically kind of look the same with a few exceptions? You know, um, how, how much range and diversity are we really talking about? It, there's actually an amazing range and amazing diversity, but they're limited. Because you think of the shape of a jellyfish. You know what a jellyfish looks like, right? It's a bell. It's got some tentacles and it kind of pulses and swims. Yeah. Well, if you take that, flip it upside down, put it on the bottom, you get a sea anemone. Oh, okay. Put that into a coral shell, a, a skeleton, and you have a coral. 
they are physiologically and morphologically the same as jellyfish. They just have a hard exoskeleton. So they are limited to that body type. They don't have arms and legs. They don't have wings. They don't have eyeballs. They have this basic round shape. And if you want that basic round shape to grow, you're limited because the, the largest single polyp coral is smaller than a dinner plate. When you think about it, you have one mouth and a bunch of tentacles. Well, if you get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you got a lot of mass to feed through that one mouth. And so they don't get that big. They're usually, I mean, the biggest ones I've really seen are, you know, as, as, as big around as the top of a coffee cup. That's as wide as they get. But some of them, literally one coral I saw in the Florida Keys, the, uh, the National Marine Sanctuary had put out a buoy in Hawk Channel off of Key Largo. And since we we're going through that area all the time, we say, hey, there's a new buoy here. Oh, let's jump in there. We know there's a, they, they marked it because it's shallow. And we jump in, there's this beautiful coral reef. And it's maybe as big as a house, literally about as big as a house. And we swam around that coral reef. And I realized it's one coral, one animal that was as big as a house. Oh, wow. <laughs> now there's some other corals growing on it, some other species. But the structure of it was one single massive animal. But the animal, even though it had made a skeleton as big as a house, it was only a few millimeters thick. It was like a, a, a slime, literally, because it's, it's like a jellyfish, right? That was, I don't know, 50 feet long and 20 feet wide and a half a centimeter thick. Now, it's still, it's, it's based, this basic polyp shape, right? It's, like, like, it's like, a, like a jellyfish. But what it does is... This particular species, to get bigger and bigger and bigger, it sheets out and then pops up other little jellyfishes. Oh, okay. So it's one animal with millions of mouths, and each mouth is surrounded by tentacles, just like a jellyfish. Yeah. And they're buried inside this calcium carbonate skeleton that it's making, but they only live on the very surface of the skeleton. Yeah. Cool. Now, other corals, to get big... They take their polyp and bend it around and bend it and bend it and bend it and bend it. And that produces what we call brain corals. Right. The, we talked about them before because they, as sponges, they look brainy as like the, a sponge in the shape of a brain. Yeah, but, it, but it's not a sponge. It's a coral, different part of the, of the, of the, uh, the phylum animalia. Speaking of which, I have heard people refer to some kinds of aquatic creature things as sponges. Is that a thing, or is that just a layman that doesn't know what he's talking about? Um, I would say it's probably a layman that doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay. Except there are a lot of sponges on the reef too, and they have a lot of different forms. And I mean, they're they're different colors. Some of them you touch them, they hurt. Some of them they don't. Some of them are huge. Some of them are tiny. Some of them are encrusting. Some grow up like fingers. And there's there's tons and tons of different types of, of sponges. And so you jump on a reef, you don't necessarily know what a sponge versus a soft coral versus a hard coral until you actually pay attention and learn. So it, it sometimes it's hard to, it's hard to uh, figure it all out. So it's a mistake people can make, but sometimes the mistake is justified. Right. So you're saying that there are some kinds of aquatic thing that are referred to as sponges, maybe a specific kind of thing, but it's not a coral, a coral or a kind of coral. Yeah, no, no, there are tons, there's hundreds of species of sponges. So there is a thing called a sponge. So what's the difference between sponge and coral? Is sponge more like moss and coral is more like a uh, flower? <laughs> um, I'm trying to understand. It's like the difference between a turtle and a snail. Okay, yeah. They're radically different animals. Turtles and snails have nothing in common. Well, a, a sponge 
doesn't have um, specific tissue types. It's a whole bunch of cells that grow together into a large animal, but there's no differentiation from one cell to the next. Corals, though, they have a skin. They have a bottom, which is also made of skin. And in, in the middle, they have this gooey stuff called mesaglia, which has a whole bunch of nuclei, but no cells. Mesaglia. Yeah, this is the goo inside the jellyfish. It's literally a goo. And then a coral will have stinging cells. It will have fluorescent protein cells. It will have digestive cells inside it. It will have some of those cells on the inside will turn into eggs or sperm. So it has differentiation of cell types. Sponges don't. That's a big difference between them. And they're completely different animals, but they can look very similar. And so we can not we can forgive people for getting them confused sometimes in some cases. Yeah, and it's not like either one of them is very active and we say, oh, look at that. The, the coral is running over there and there's a, a, a herd of coral being you know, rounded up by the crabs. You see that? Yeah, There are some corals that, that walk. What? Are they moving like as fast as starfish or even faster? Yeah. How does that work? Eh, slower, faster in that range. But some of the ones that are shaped like little saucers, maybe three or four or five inches across, they're, they're really fleshy and fat. And if they're not attached to the substrate, if they're not glued down, they can literally bulge underneath themselves and the cilia on the coral can propel them across the sand. <laughs> I think I've seen an example of that once. Come they're not it. common. Impressive. Yeah. And I've only seen, I've only you know, seen pictures of them from the, uh, the Pacific Ocean. It probably could happen in the Caribbean too, but I've never seen it myself. Okay. So you said there are fluorescent examples. Is this sort of like your fluorescent fish? Do they have the gene and they glow green in the dark? How does this work? Yes. Um, animals have uh, chromatophores, a lot of different animals. They have cells that can expand and contract. And in those cells, it's usually melanin, like a brownish color. Uh, one of the reasons why we tan is because our melanosomes expand. Um, but corals, they have fluorosomes. I don't know what to call them. It was, you know, part of my PhD doctoral work looked staring at these animals under a fluorescent microscope for hours and hours and hours trying to describe what I was seeing, but I never actually wrote a paper about it, which was stupid because I could have been the first to describe the fluorescent cell type of corals. They're different. You can see them. You look at a coral under a light, it might be glowing green, but you zoom up on it. Oh no, it's got green spots. Zoom up on it even more. And it's like a spider web because a cell, it, it, it's a very irregular shaped cell and it sticks up above the, the surface of the coral. It's a very specific cell type and no one knows what they're for. Literally, I, I listed in my dissertation, I think 17 possible uses for fluorescent proteins in corals and seven con 17 contradictions. <laughs> Most people say, oh, they're photoprotective because what they do is they grab ultraviolet light and they shift it into the green. So see that? It's protecting the coral from ultraviolet light. Oh. Yeah, except I went into our invertebrate museum at the University of Miami, and I asked the curator, I said, do we have any deep water corals? She goes, oh, yes, we collected these in the 1930s from a mile down where there's no sunlight. And I walked up to this, this old pickle jar with a rusty lid, and inside are some corals, and the alcohol is visibly green. Ew. Wow. And so I sampled the alcohol and I, I took a piece of the animal and I had, went to my fluorescent scope and my fluorometer. And sure enough, it was green fluorescent protein in an animal. And so much of it, it colored the water, it colored the alcohol that it was preserved in for nearly 100 years. And yet that animal had never seen any sunlight. 
So obviously they're not photoprotective. Oh, good point. Yeah. I have no idea what they're for, but they produce a lot <laughs> of this protein. And this is what gives them their amazing colors. They're green, they're purple, they're white, they're red, orange, yellow. Um, they can be really stunning. Most corals though, are boring, basic brown. And that was a big surprise to me because everyone always talked about how colorful the coral reefs are and how scuba diving, you see all these colors and colors and colors and I'm scuba diving. I'm like, I see brown. Really? Because the corals we're talking about, the ones that, that grow reefs, they inside them have algae and the algae are brown. Ah, and so that makes sense. I mean, a nice chocolate brown coral is a nice healthy coral. A pale coral is not healthy. But a nice chocolate brown one's got a lot of algae in it. And then on top of that, they might have some fluorescent cells like in the tips of the tentacles or in the mouth or something like that. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Then when you say you go to one of the beautiful coral reefs and you see mostly brown, it, it, how come people see the colorful so much? Is that just because that's what the photographers are looking for? Yes. And, yep. Okay. Yep. They'll go and take a picture of that one there. And they tend to look at fish. I, I went on a, um, a series of dives two summers ago to do some filming. And the, the, the pastor who was leading this expedition and paying for it, and, and it was his TV show. And he kept, every time we come up, oh, do you see this fish? And you see that fish? And all the fish? And oh, all these fish are great. I love these fish. And I'm like, I didn't see any fish. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah. why am I looking at fish? I'm looking at corals. <laughs> <laughs> and so people's perception depends upon what they, they're looking at. So my typical scuba dive, I don't want to jump in the water and, and drift and drift and drift. I want to go down, find a sand patch and sit oh. and not move because a swimming person looks like a shark. And when you're swimming by, all the animals disappear. Oh. But if you're just sitting there and just breathing nice and slowly and your bubbles are going up, you're not posing any threat. After about yeah. 30 seconds to a minute, the reef comes alive with critters. They just They just come up and there's... Who knows what you might see that you could never see if you're moving. And so, yeah. And then you get up real close to a coral and you can watch it eat. You can watch it interact with a damselfish or a little cleaner shrimp or whatever. There's all sorts of cool stuff you can see when you get up close to them. Okay. I got really good at hovering and I got really good at hovering upside down, feet up, head down. Oh, that's cool. For three summers, I was working on a project where we were looking for baby corals. We we're looking for coral recruits. And we went to the same reefs every summer. So it was like three days a week for two months. Pack up the gear, hour and a half drive down to Key Largo, get in the boat. You know, basically three or four hours after I hit the university, we'd be on the reef diving. We'd dive for a couple hours and drive back. And did that three days a week for a couple summers. Nice. And we went Speaking to the of diving, would you listen to anything while you worked or did, did y'all have comm links so that you were communicating <laughs> to the others? No, that, co that costs money. Oh, okay. um, on this, the last dive that I did with this pastor that I just described, he had me take a class with him on how to wear a full face mask because he wanted to be able to record sound underwater. And so when you have a full face mask, you don't have the respirator in your mouth. Right. You're, you breathe in into this air-filled cavity around your head. And it's okay, but the audio quality was never any good. You know, and so I wasn't like, and plus, I don't talk underwater. I'm busy paying attention to my gauges and my breathing and what I'm looking at. And so it wasn't like I can do a running monologue underwater. And plus, I never, I did not like the mask much because if it flooded, you can't breathe. 
Oh yeah. Because you don't have the respirator in your mouth. Your mouth is, is, is exposed to this air thing. And it, and I had a beard and so it was constantly leaking around the beard. And so, you know, I was constantly clearing the mask. I was like, you know, this is really awkward. I, I would rather just do a yeah. normal scuba dive. Oh, that so makes no, sense. there's no talking. You get very good at um, gesticulating underwater. You get very good at communicating uh, with finger points and and hand signs. And very often you'd go down with underwater paper on a, a clipboard that would get rusty and fall apart over time. But the underwater paper and one of those clicky pencils. And so you could write underwater if you, if you tell someone something. But usually you got to know your people and you got to know your job and you didn't have to communicate much. That makes sense. Yeah, but all that was a long diversion from the question of, can you raise these guys in captivity? Can you have them make babies? Right. So the big ones, no, but the little ones. See, there's a totally different reproductive strategy that corals have. One of them is make millions and millions of little teeny babies and let them float away. And the other one is only make a few and have reproduction happen inside the coral. So internal fertilization. Sometimes self-fertilization, sometimes a sperm from a male colony will swim over to a female colony, or sometimes a colony will be hermaphroditic, but its sperm would float over to another colony and the other colony would float over to it. So you get cross-fertilization. And then okay. the egg would be fertilized and the dividing would happen inside the coral. Sometimes they do this on the outside of the coral, but it's stuck to the coral, but usually inside. And then it grows into this little larvae that swims around. And under a microscope, you can see them swimming around inside the coral polyp. And then they'll, some, some species, they, they uh, float out the mouth and some species, they float up the tentacles and pop out the tentacle tip. I think totally, I saw an totally example cool. of that in maybe Disney's Pinocchio when he goes underwater. I, I can't remember. I saw, saw, saw that in a Disney movie somewhere. Huh. Pinocchio. I haven't seen that since I was like six. so I don't remember anymore. It was actually a pretty good example of showing off coral. And when you were bringing up how a lot of them are brown, it reminded me that while the Pinocchio portrayal of the coral had a lot of color, there was a lot more brown to it than we portray in more modern films. You must be talking about when he got eaten by Monstro, or right before, right after the underwater scene. He's looking for Geppetto in the whale, and and so he's shouting, underwater. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. (laughs) Yeah, he's going around the coral, and I noticed a lot of brown. So interesting. I hadn't thought about that until you said it. Yes, but back then, uh, scuba diving was brand new. Jacques Cousteau had just invented it in the 1950s, and we didn't know very much about corals. In fact, in the 1800s, we thought they were plants. We didn't realize they were animals. Oh. When did they figure that out? Was it soon after diving? Okay. No, no, diving, that just just changed everything, because now you could actually study them underwater for the first time. You didn't have to, you know throw a dredge down and rip up coral colonies and bring them up onto the deck of your boat. You actually look at them underwater. And yet, you can't scuba dive for hours and hours and hours. You're limited by the amount of air that you carry. And the deeper you go, the less time you can spend. So my preferred dive is 20 feet. Because I could spend maybe two hours on one tank. I got, I got to the point where, I mean, I didn't breathe. People were like, how do you do that? I was like, well, first of all, I'm super skinny. I don't have a lot of mass. So I don't need a lot of oxygen. Second of all, I got really good at not moving because the more you move, the more carbon dioxide you produce and the more you have to breathe. I mean, I, all my, I mean, I would cross my arms across my chest and all of my regulators and all my gear would be 
we you know, held really tight, so I was very streamlined, and I would barely kick, and I would hardly move, and I could just spend a long time underwater, and I loved it. Nice. And now that I'm older and I weigh 30 pounds more, it's not I'm not quite as agile underwater as I was then, but you know, my 20s and early 30s, I was a fish. <laughs> sure. Yeah, but you didn't get spongy. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the, the reproductive strategy of these other corals. Yeah. These tend to be small. They tend to be, they live a couple of years and then they get overwhelmed, buried in mud or broken or something like that. They tend to be small, weedy sorts of corals. And they put a lot of energy into making babies that are full grown and ready to go. So they can pop out the coral and literally land right next door and start growing. And you tend to get vast fields of these um, on the reef um, if it's a good habitat. And sometimes you just get them popping up all over the place. So most of the coral recruits that we found in these studies that we were doing were these weedy corals, the ones that had fast reproductive rates and made you know fully ready to go babies. And then the coral diseases that swept through Florida and killed off, I mean, almost everything. The first things to go were the broadcast spawning corals, the branching ones. And then the big, the big house-sized ones, they all died too. And then the weedy species started dying. So they're, they're just hardier. They're, they're easier to take care of in captivity. In fact, so when I had my coral aquaculture facility, the indoor tanks, we got some, we got the specific corals. It's a, a branching coral. You know, it can get huge, but they would reproduce when they're smaller than your fist. And after six months in the tank, I noticed that, hey, there's a little coral here on the drain. It's like, oh, it's a reproductive baby. This guy had babies. And after a couple of years, I had taken my corals and um, there were so many babies being produced. I had to chisel them off the drain to keep the water draining in the tank. Oh, wow. So I know this can be done and I just want to do it. So one of the reasons you grow the coral is because they're just fascinating, beautiful creatures. Are, are there other useful properties of coral that have other applications? You mean besides coral reefs shadow or, or prevent uh, hurricane damage to lots of coastlands around the world? Yeah. Um, that's one. one And the giant fisheries, because they are um, basically the open ocean is a desert. There's no food in the open ocean. Oh, there's, when you put it there's no fish. Way, there's sad. no fish in the middle of the ocean. It's empty. There's nothing there. Coral reefs, though, stick up into the shallow, sunlit zone, and therefore plants can grow there. Therefore, things that eat plants can grow there. Therefore, things that eat the things that eat the plants can grow there. And you can have an entire ecosystem because basically it's an island in the middle of a desert. It's an oasis, literally, is, is what it is. And so you get a lot of productivity there, and you got a lot of fish, which means a lot of food. That's a perfect way to describe it, but I hadn't thought of the ocean as a desert. Oh, but in terms of the habitat's own, yeah, I mean, but when you think desert, you think dry and desolate. And that's a perfect ex ex metaphor, though. Wow. Huh. One thing that has always struck me as odd is that there are a lot of creatures teeming in the oceans, and they're, they're doing okay in broad speaking terms. You know, naturally, there are things that are toxic, that uh, are hurting a lot of creatures. And I know that uh, many other programs will spend a lot of time talking about that. And you, you're welcome to talk about those things too, Rob, if you want to on this show. You know, th things that a man has made that they allow to get into the oceans that mess up their habitats. But for the most part, it's actually quite impressive. What is it? Earth is covered by more than 70% of the surface is bodies of water. Yep. 
Almost all that's ocean, yes. Most of that's ocean, yeah. I was going to say it's got to be a relatively small percentage that still accounts for the lakes and rivers, right? Yep. So do we have any uh, idea how much there is in the way of bodies of water that are under land or like underground rivers of, well, bodies of water underground, you know? Yeah, there are estimates of, of groundwater all around the world, yes. And those would still be a small percentage, right? Yes, very small. Interesting. So for the most part, in the vast areas of the ocean, it's desert. Yep. Huh. That is a new idea for me. Because I, I just kind of thought of it as the big blue is, it's got a lot of life. Uh, but yeah, nope. huh. Nope. What we see is like the fishery off of Peru is massive. The sardine and anchovy fishery is huge. But the cold current coming up from Antarctica, which carries lots of nutrients, it gets to one particular point and hits a shallow shelf and it, it wafts upwards into the sunlight. And because you have this nutrient-dense water going up into the sunlight, you get an algae bloom. And then you have the clupeoids, are the fish that are filter feeders, like sardines. They will reproduce like crazy. And then the, the tuna will come in and the sharks will come in. So you just all this productivity, but only in that one spot. And the, uh, the North Sea the, um, in England, in the Irish Sea, those are shallow seas with lots of fish. And the Grand Banks off of, um, off of the northeast of the United States, it's a shallow bank and the, the, the water is flowing northwards. It hits that, it goes upwards, and all of a sudden you have this massive fluke flounder and cod fishery because of the shallow water with lots of nutrients. But if you don't have that sort of a situation, you get stagnation. Um, if, if you think about it, the reason that coral reef areas or tropical waters are clear is because there's no nutrients. If there's nutrients, there would be algae, and then the water gets cloudy. And the reason there's no nutrients is because the surface is really warm. You go down a couple hundred feet, though, and it gets cold fast. There's a, a layer, it's called the isotherm, where it goes from warm to cold. And it's, sometimes you can see it. It's maybe you know six inches thick. And it, I mean, freezing cold, and it just gets colder and colder and colder. At the bottom of the ocean, even in tropical oceans, the bottom's like four degrees Celsius. The top is 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And so there's a, a, a warm layer on the top of the ocean in the tropics that sits on top of the cold layer, and there's, there, there's a density difference that's strong enough they can't mix. And so when a fish eats a plant and poops, that little poop pellet falls down and gets stripped out of the water column. As soon as it gets below the thermocline, it hits the deep ocean where it's cold. There's tons of nutrients down there, but at the top, because the two things don't mix, there's constantly a stripping away of all the nutrients. That's why the oceans are a desert. This is why whales uh, go to Antarctica, because in Antarctica, you don't get that density difference. You have cold water from the surface to the bottom. And so if a wind blows, the whole water column stirs and all the stuff on the bottom gets stirred up into the light. You get an algae bloom and then you get a krill bloom and here comes a whale eating all the krill. Mm. Whales might go to the Bahamas to give birth, but there's no food there. They fatten up you know, the, in the North Atlantic, not in the Bahamas. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So the challenge, if you want to raise these guys is to reproduce those conditions in an enclosed setting. And that's really hard. And the biggest mistake people make, I'm going to have a coral reef tank and they fill it with fish. Oh, interesting. And you have to feed fish and fish pee and fish poop. And where does that go? You can't take that out of the water. And so if you, every, you know, 
you, you take a bunch of fish food and you mash it up, maybe it's frozen or maybe it's flake food or whatever it is, whatever you're going to feed your fish, all of that is material that stays in the tank forever. The phosphorus, the nitrogen, um, the, the, the carbon, that's just, it's, it's nutrients, it's pollution in one sense. Once it gets to above a certain level, it's pollution. And you get this massive algae bloom because algae, they love nutrients. Corals don't. They want to live in a desert. The reason they live is because they can live in that desert. You add a little bit of nutrients, algae will cover the coral and kill them. That happened in the, the, the reefs of Jamaica. The reefs in Jamaica, basically in the 1990s, they all died. What happened was a, uh, a pestilence wiped out like 98% of the long-spined sea urchins, which are the primary algae eaters in the Caribbean. And when they died, the reefs of Jamaica, boom, got covered in algae and all the corals died and they haven't recovered. Mm, interesting. So they live on the edge. And as long as you can give them lots of sunlight, good warm water, lots of calcium carbonate, and very low nutrients, you can grow them. But if you got a bunch of fish in your tank, you got to feed them. And that's the opposite of what you want. And yet you need the fish because one species will eat some of the critters that will eat the coral. Another one will eat algae, etc. So usually two or three fish in a tank is about all you need. And they'll do exactly what you want. But people want more and more fish because the fish are colorful. Yeah. And so you have a choice. Fish and rocks or corals and no fish. Those are your two choices. So if you've been around a aquarium that looked like it had coral and it had a lot of fish and clearly they were very healthy was it most likely rocks rather than coral for the most part the people that can do both have massive uh, uh very important budgets? very expensive ways massive budgets that's a good way to say it they will do huge water changes and every time you do a water change you suck out the old water and put in fresh water or fresh you know salt water and so you, you reduce the nutrient concentration. They'll have algal scrubbers where you have water uh, running over something with a light and the algae grow on that something. Every once in a while, you pick it up and you scrape it off. They might have a refugium with algae growing in it. They might have uh, carbon that they put in the tank that absorbs phosphate um, and on and on and on and on. There's all these different ways to do it, chemically or physically. And they spend a lot of time keeping that in check. In the old days... Um, the idea was you'd have like a six inch thick sand bed on the bottom of your tank and the bottom of that would become anaerobic. Anaerobic. What does that mean? That means no oxygen. Oh, okay. So all the fish poop and all that kind of stuff will get, you know, land on the soil, on the soil, on the top of the sand and little critters in the sand will work it into the sand. And as you go down just an inch or so into the sand, all the oxygen gets sucked up by bacteria and the bottom of it is oxygen free or very low oxygen. And that's the type of bacteria that take nitri nitrate and turn it into nitrogen. Nitrogen gas bubbles out. Except um, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to have a sand bed in the bottom of my tank. All that does is collect a whole bunch of organic material. It's kind of nasty. Oh, right. You know, brown goo down there. And a lot of those bacteria produce toxins and things that I don't want in my tank. So um, bare bottom is the way I'm going. I had a fish aquarium many years ago and cleaning it was mostly about a quick wipe down the inside of the walls and yep. then making sure that the airways on the filter were unclogged and then lots and lots and lots of suction out yes. of those pebbles at the bottom. Out of those of the pebbles and all that brown, nasty, ugh, gross. Yeah. Well, that, that was actually an ecosystem that you were sucking up with who knows how many bacteria 
all different species and doing all sorts of cool things. And every time you did that, you totally disturbed the ecosystem, which yeah. threw a lot of the chemistry of the water out of equilibrium. But this is just the way we have to do it. Equilibrium? Did you mean equilibrium? I, I, equilibrium? Yes, I just I just misspoke, and I was hoping that no one would notice. But you noticed, and so did the, our ten thousand <laughs> listeners. And, oh, Carter can't even talk, man. Why do we listen to this guy? Oh, me, me too. I don't know why either one of us are allowed on a podcast. <laughs> because we talk about cool stuff like how to grow corals, which we haven't even gotten there yet. We just keep talking about the coral, the animal, and the coral reef, and how amazing it is, and how fun these things are. But you know how well, then, I can you can ahead. you give me Rob? Let's yes. say that there is a precocious child yes. that wants to start their own coral. What would they do? What would you recommend? Where do they begin? Um, they would begin by watching lots of videos. They would begin by joining a local reef society. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, hobbyists. You, you, you can't do it on your own. There are so many mistakes to make. Now, once you get going, you got it and you can do it just fine. But any mistake you can make, you will make, and it will be fatal to your tank. Oh, okay. I mean, anything that can go wrong is going to go wrong. Your pump's going to burn out. Your tank's going to leak. Your lights are going to fall into your fish tank and electrocute everything, maybe yourself. Um, everything no. that can go wrong is going to happen. The people who are successful at this are OCD, literally. They're crazy. <laughs> they... <laughs> They can do the same. They have record keeping. They write everything down. They know exactly what their water chemistry is. And they're, it, it takes, you spend a lot of time on a reef tank. It's not like you just set it up and walk away. You spend every day, you're doing stuff on that thing. You can't go on vacation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so plug okay. into the community, learn lots, get books, but talk to people. Um, man, just go, go and volunteer at an aquarium store. Say, hey, I'll scrub your tanks if you talk to me for an hour. Whatever, you know, just you, you have yeah, to plug yeah. in that way. Good idea. Yeah. All right, and then back to yours. Then okay. how do you go about it? Well, um, one of the secrets is good lighting, good temperature control, and good water. If you do those three things, you have a good basis. Now, for me, my, my dream here is to have three tanks. And the first tank is smaller and has my most sensitive corals in it. And I do frequent water changes to keep the water chemistry very uh, pristine. But that water spills over into the second tank, which has eh, corals and fish, and the corals are more hardy. And that water spills over into a third tank that has nothing but fish, because fish don't care nearly as much about water quality as corals do. And that way I can have everything that anyone would want, and it's kind of like, you know, this one feeds this one, feeds that one, and everything's happy. I'm also going to set up my smaller tank. Now, this is a dream thing here. This is not going to happen overnight. This is a several-year plan. The smaller tank, I'm going to set it up with four particular species that I'm targeting because I know these species are hermaphroditic brooding corals that release full-grown babies. And they're going to be in sort of like a raceway where the water flows in one direction. At the other end of this raceway, I can install some um, a little screen made of plankton netting. And if I put that in in the evening during my artificial full moon cycle, because you have to mimic the full moon. You have to have a little light that pretends to be the moon that's on in the middle of the night a couple of nights a month. So the coral knows what time of day it is and what time of the moon it is. Because those little guys pay attention to such things. And you want them to release their babies. In, and plus, you have to cycle the temperature up and down. Well, they are, like you, we were saying, they are were fish. So they need to know when it's a full moon. Were fish. <laughs> 
something like that. But they they know what season it is. They know what time of day it is. And they are very seasonal creatures. So the tank has to, the temperature has to change. Maybe 78 degrees in the wintertime, 82 degrees in the summertime. And you have to mimic the moon. So some nights it's pitch black at night and some nights you have a little light on and that will mimic the lunar cycle. And then you can capture the little babies that come out. And that's my goal. I want to capture the little babies just to show I can do it and then tell the world how to do it. And then I'm thinking, see, the way you grow corals is you take the coral out of the tank, you grab a pair of pliers and you break it. And then you take the broken part and you crazy glue it onto a rock and put it back in the tank. And some of the crazy glues you can use underwater. And so literally a pair of pliers and crazy glue was my primary research tool for several years. Out on the reef was a hammer and chisel. And you can also take them and you, you, have you ever um, installed tile? I haven't, but I have seen it done. Okay. You know the tile saw? It's a wet saw? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can put coral on a tile saw. Oh, And cut their skeleton right through. It smells because of a lot of protein in that skeleton. And make squares out of them or make lines out of them or whatever. And then take those pieces that you take a coral colony, slice it up into a whole bunch of pieces, and then glue them onto something and put them back in the aquarium. That's how the coral aquaculture world operates. All these people with their beautiful tanks, um, happily, most of these are now captive grown because um, Fiji has shut down completely the export of corals. The aquarium trade was basically bleeding the reefs of Fiji dry. So no more things can be exported from Fiji. You can't get corals from the Caribbean at all. And so most of the people now are captive breeding corals by fragging them, cutting them with a saw or a pair of pliers, and then having that thing grow. Now, some of the ones that look like little mushrooms, they don't like to do that because then you have a, a misshapen one and it's worthless. You can't resell it. And so a lot of those are still coming in from the wild. But most of the others, a lot of others, are just captive bred 100%. And now we're talking three or four or five generations now of people breaking a branch off and handing it to their friend. And the friend grows and they break a branch off and they hand it to their friend. And this is really cool. It's a, it's yeah, a, good, really it's a good way to do it. So I, I know this is not like the point. It's not the note we want to end the show on. I, I, I don't want to end anything on a uh, sort of a, quote, bittersweet note for Coral. <laughs> but now I feel compelled to ask... Are there coral endangered species? Is this a thing? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, um, in the Caribbean, um, the, the most sensitive corals are just dying like flies. Their range has yeah. shrunk totally. Um, in the, um, yeah, corals are very sensitive animals and the environment that they live in is changing. They need warm water with lots of calcium and very low nutrients. And they need sharks because sharks eat the things that eat the things that eat the corals. And yet, factory ships from China and Japan, they can go to the most remotest reefs in the world and they'll harvest all the sharks, cut off the fin and throw the shark back in the water to die oh. because of shark fin soup. And oh. what this does is it turns the ecosystem upside down. It, 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 yeah. it distorts the, um, the, the food chain and totally messes everything up. And so the first thing to go on a reef is the sharks. And then fishermen will come and they'll grab all of the predators because predators will bite bait on a hook. The fish that eat algae and the fish that eat corals, they don't, they don't grab a hook, but all the predators will, but the predators are also the ones that eat the fish that eat the corals. And so the trophic system just gets flipped upside down and everything falls apart after a while. And we're seeing that happen in place after place after place all around the world. Wow. And then we have this thing called global warming, 
which is a real thing, which in fact, we should probably do an episode on global warming one day. Now, yeah. the effect of it, how strong it'll be, that's up for debate. The cause of it, up for debate. But the world is a little warmer now than it was in the past. And corals already live at the upper edge of their thermal tolerance. One degree warmer in the summertime and they die. They live right on the edge. So if the water warms a little bit, we're going to get a lot of coral loss. But carbon dioxide is also a problem. Even if the, even if the, the water doesn't warm, the fact that carbon dioxide is increasing in the atmosphere means carbon dioxide dissolving in the water. And when you dissolve carbon dioxide in the water, it dissolves calcium carbonate. And calcium carbonate is what corals make their skeletons out of. Right now, the form of calcium carbonate that they, pu they pull out of the water is called aragonite, that, that crystal. And it's like, it's right. super saturated in the ocean, like eight times super saturated. And it's just ready to crystallize. It just needs a place to make a crystal. So what the coral does, it lays down a, a layer of protein. And that protein is just right. The calcium will crystallize on it. It's right out of the water. No energy required once you make the, the, the protein. But as you add carbon dioxide to the water, the saturation state of the calcium goes down. Even if it's still super saturated, it gets to the point where the coral, it's not worth putting all that energy into skeleton production and it can't live. And so there's some real world threats um, in the coral world all around the world. There's no place in the globe that's, that's free of human. Mm. Now, granted, they survived at a time when, according to the fossil record, it looks like a lot more carbon dioxide in the air than exists today. Yeah. But then again, in the fossil record, you don't see massive coral reefs anywhere. There's no Great Barrier Reef buried under the ground in the, in the fossil record. Interesting. Now, I think the fossil record is a product of the flood. However, in the pre-flood world, there's no giant coral reefs. They have all grown since the end of the last ice age. Now, for the evolutionary time frame, it's about 10,000 years ago. In the biblical time frame, it's about 4,500 years ago. That's not that big a difference. The entire Great Barrier Reef, the whole thing, was dry ground at the height of the Ice Age. It wasn't ocean. It was land. And when the glacier started melting, the sea level came up, the entire Great Barrier Reef has grown in just a couple thousand years. If that's true, where are the coral reefs in the rock record? They're not there. Wow. Oh, that's, that's a whole other subject for another day, I guess. Tell us about the coral that you're going to use in your tank. You hadn't specifically pointed out this, the ones that you're after. All right. I'm going for Pasolopora. I'm going for Stylophora. I'm going for one of the, one of the less corals, the Agaricea, if I can get some. Um, Madrasis, the rose coral. Um, those are my, my target species. They're beautiful. And they release planula because they're self-fertilizing or at least internal fertilization. And so uh, I'm still a scientist. I'm still a nerd. And honestly, I don't want a big showy coral reef aquarium. That's not my goal. And one of the reasons why people have never seen corals reproduce in the wild is because the coral reef tank is the last place you would expect the coral baby to survive. So I'm going to make it so that they can survive because I want to study the animals. Now that means that people are going to walk in my house and say, oh, what's this? This is not very pleasant looking. But I'm like, oh, this animal is so cool. Check this out. Um, so it's a different, <laughs> a different way to sell what I'm trying to do compared to what most people would do. Anyway, just saying. And how long does it take for your new family, your new coral pets to grow? Will you have a full <laughs> tank in two years? Four years. Okay. Yeah. That's not too bad. Not too bad. But once, once they're going, they go. Once you've 
get everything right and you're consistent and you you got your water quality and your lighting and, and your systems and you clean your pumps out regularly and you don't have any massive failures, once that thing is going, it takes off. And you'll get to the point where every six months, you got to reach in with a pair of pliers and break branches off of your corals because they're shadowing the other corals. At this point, you give the branches away to your friends or you sell them if you want to. It, it, it's a long-term thing. It's not, it's not like bees where you put bees in a hive and then six months later, you get honey. Hopefully, six months from now. Um, this is a, a long-term project that takes a lot of love and a lot of dedication, but it is a fun project. It's a, it's a good learning experience. You learn a lot of biology. You learn a lot of chemistry. You learn a lot of record keeping and um, paying attention to details. So honestly, for, for a high schooler, this would be a great project, but it does also take a certain mindset. Someone like me, I, I know I'm going to struggle because I tend to pick up a project and run with it until I get bored, but this is not something you can get bored with. It's too much of an investment. It's something you stick with. It's sort of like people who want a parrot. Oh, I have this parrot. Oh, look at this parrot. This is great. Hey, dude, that parrot's going to live for 80 years. You're going to have that until you die. You realize that, right? What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rob, little what? known fact. I nearly got a, a scarlet macaw when, and a blue and gold macaw when I was like 15 years old. Oh, and man. I loved parrots. I studied them. I went to nurseries where they had their young and they were growing. And they were hideous. I, I, I learned everything I could about them. And I wanted to get this one that needed a new home. It was about eight years old from Chicago. And I talked to the owners. We talked about how to transport it here. And there's more to the story. But yeah, one big thing to consider was these guys live, outlive me. <laughs> You know, well, do I do I want to give this parrot to my grandchildren? <laughs> I'm 15 years old. <laughs> yeah. Someone gave a uh, a parrot to the uh, Naples Zoo, and they had to take it out of public because it swore a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, the person had a bad mouth, and his potty mouth. Well, little children were rather shocked by what this parrot was saying, so it, it disappeared from public view pretty quickly. And the good news is that coral cannot talk back. That's right. A coral cannot talk back, but it will tell you very clearly if it's happy. And if it's not happy, it dies. <laughs> they, they are a pet a few words. I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Everything's fine here. Oh, no, I'm doomed. And it happens fast. And literally, you'll be like, what on earth happened? This guy was ha looked happy yesterday. He wasn't. You just didn't know it. And boom, he just it just turns. Wow. Anyway. Fascinating creature. Well, that was awesome. Ready to wrap up there? I think that's good enough for me. Sweet. And if you want me to keep talking, I'll talk for another hour on a, on a similar subject. But I think that's good, good for one day. Awesome. I, I love it, too. This was a good, well-rounded episode. So thanks, everybody, for joining us on this quest. If you want to... Find this episode, there, the show notes, and anything that Rob referred to, maybe some of the pictures that show his uh, uh, Rob in yesteryear with his original aquarium and his earlier coral. How want to say corals in his earlier corals? Then uh, you can find links to this, these things in his show notes. Uh, so head over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 42 for this episode. It's episode 42, and the show notes are there with links about corals and those pictures. And if you want to uh, help us out, if you found this episode interesting in any way, 
consider sharing it with your friends and family that are interested in wildlife and aquatic life. If you want to get more of Rob, check out his other project, Biblical Genetics. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube and MeWe, and you can watch his videos and you can jump into the discussions in the comments. You can't do that with our podcast, but you got show notes. And for his videos, you, you can join in the comments. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, and you can listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. And until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You will have the listening to the Equinox. That was good, man. How'd you do that? I just had to throw that in. (laughs) Practicing as a kid, you know, I played a lot with action figures, G.I. Joes in which I have, you know. Oh, yeah. My G.I. Joe had Kung Fu grip. Yeah, I had to figure out all the sound effects, uh, make, you know, convincing (laughs) lightsaber sound effects and space battles and aquatic battles. You know, when I think of myself, I think of myself being 10 years old, playing with my G.I. Joes at the boat dock behind my house. Nice. That was like the, the golden year, that 10-year-old range there. My favorite year of life, probably. And that's like probably when I came into my own. And, and, and it's like, you know, I'm the same person on the inside as I was then. Yeah. I had a stick and I was swinging around practicing my Jedi moves when I was 10 years old <laughs> and riding my bike, exploring uh, like tunnels for, we had a, a neighborhood creek and it had like a tunnel that went under the road where all the spiders lived. Oh, yeah. I was, I was crazy. I went down into that tunnel. I wouldn't sure. go in there now. <laughs> You're right. If I would have gone in there. <laughs>